Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Today's topic is positive emotion in the midst of stress. It's not crazy, it's adaptive. And it's now my pleasure to introduce Dr. Judith Moskowitz. She's an associate professor in residence in the Department of Medicine and the Osher Center for Integrative Medicine here at UCSF. She received her PhD in social psychology from Dartmouth and her MPH in epidemiology from UC Berkeley. Her research, funded by NIH, is focused on coping and emotion in the context of chronic stress. In particular, she studies the impact of positive emotion on psychological and physical adjustment to serious illness. So please do join me in welcoming Dr. Judith Moskowitz. Thanks, everyone, for coming. I know you could have watched this from the comfort of your offices, but it's always good to get out of the office and see people face-to-face, so I appreciate that. Um, For today's talk, I'm going to do a really brief overview of stress and and its effects on health. Um, Then we'll talk about the occurrence of positive emotion in the context of stress, the adaptive function of, of positive emotion in the context of stress, And finally, probably the reason you're here, ways to increase positive emotion in daily life as a way of coping with stress. So what is stress? Now, we all know what it feels like, right? So this is what stress feels like. Um, The way academics tend, or researchers who study this, define it this way. Stress is the perception that something in the environment taxes or exceeds your resources for coping with it. And what this means is that an an objective event, that the same event that happens to two people, can be perceived very different ways. And one person can really perceive it as stressful, and another person wouldn't perceive it as quite that stressful. So we think of stress as your perception or your interpretation of something as stressful. Now, when you have this stress perception, a lot of things happen to you physiologically. So um, your body releases epinephrine and norepinephrine. It increases your heart rate and your blood pressure. You breathe faster. You might perspire. Blood flows to your active muscles, um, increases your muscle strength and your mental activity. Um, Cortisol is also released, and that tends to increase protein and fat mobilization. So it's getting that energy ready. So this is the the fight-or-flight response. Um, increases inflammation, um, or decreases inflammation for the moment. So humans have evolved with this very finely tuned stress response, which is very adaptive if this is the kind of stress you're facing. If it's something where you need to run or to fight, it mobilizes your energy to do that. Unfortunately, much of our stress today is more of this variety. It's internal. It's what we have in our heads. It has to do with our interpretation of the events going on around us. So that fight-or-flight response is not as adaptive physiologically for this kind of stress as it is for um, the fight-or-flight kind of stress. Now, I'll go through this list briefly because it's kind of depressing. Um, But stress has an effect on basically every major system of the body. So it affects your immune system. You're more susceptible to colds and other viruses when you're under stress. Your cardiovascular system, stress increases your blood pressure, increases your risk of stroke and heart attack. Your respiratory system, it can exacerbate things like asthma. Your reproductive system, stress can decrease sexual desire, increase symptoms of PMS, um, increase the likelihood of fertility problems. Your endocrine system is also affected. 
so the endocrine system affects your sleep and other um, endocrine diabetes, those kind of um, diseases related to the endocrine system. Um, Stress is also associated with an increased risk of death. Um, And this is one of my favorite studies, too, um, that demonstrates this. Um, This was published a few years ago, I guess 10 now, in JAMA. And um, the researchers looked at some older adults, some of whom were caring for a spouse, living with a spouse and caring for them, a spouse who needed some sort of caregiving because of some chronic illness, um, and an age-matched control group, age and gender-matched. And what they found was it wasn't the caregiving itself, sort of the objective stress, that was related to increased risk of mortality. The, the risk came if the caregivers were also distressed. So if they also reported feeling burdened by their caregiving and they had the negative emotion associated with their caregiving. So you can see the red bar, that's that risk of mortality over the course of five years. Um, that the distressed caregivers, those who reported burden, were actually at increased risk of death. Just caregiving alone did not increase the risk of death. So it's this perception of stress, this, um, the appraisal, that really seems to be the key thing in the negative effects of stress on physical health. So how can we protect ourselves from stress? The research so far, rightly so, has been focused almost exclusively on negative emotion. There's a big literature on depression and distress and stress and its effect on physical health. But recently, um, there have been more and more studies showing that positive emotion in and of itself has a unique beneficial effect. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. Positive emotion or positive affect, I use those terms interchangeably here, is actually related to a lower risk of mortality. Um, I've published a couple papers showing that uh, people with AIDS uh, who have more positive emotion are less likely to die over the course of the study. People with diabetes have a lower risk of of, of mortality if um, they have higher levels of positive emotion. This has been shown by others in older samples. Uh, healthy people who aren't suffering from any particular type of serious stress. This is independent of negative emotion. So it isn't just that people with more positive emotion have less negative emotion and therefore live longer. It's something unique about positive emotion. Something's going on specific to positive emotion. Um, Let me give you an example of one of my favorite studies showing that positive emotion is related to to longer life. This is um, data from the NUNS study, which is actually a much larger study looking at symptoms of Alzheimer's, and then the NUNS um, donated their brains after they die for uh, examination of the effects of cognitive impairment and how that affects the brain. But as a sub-study of that, the researchers were able to... um, gain access to autobiographies that the women wrote as they were um, entering the convent. So they were 22 years old when they wrote these just basically one-page autobiographies about their lives and why they were entering the convent. And then the researchers scored those, um, those narratives for emotional content, and then they looked at positive and negative sentences in those um, positive and negative emotional content and related that to longevity. Um, decades later. So they wrote these when they were in their 20s, and then they were followed up at you know, 75 to 95. So let me give you an example of what some of these narratives looked like. Here's a low positive emotion one. Actually, it's a low emotion one. Um, I was born on September 26, 1909, the eldest of seven children, five girls and two boys. My candidate year was spent in the mother house teaching chemistry and second year Latin at Notre Dame Institute. With God's grace, I intend to do my best for our order, for the spread of religion, and for my personal sanctification. So there's not a lot of emotion going on there. 
Here's a high positive emotion one. God started my life off well by bestowing upon me a grace of inestimable value. The past year, which I have spent as a candidate studying at Notre Dame College, has been a very happy one. Now I look forward with eager joy to receiving the holy habit of Our Lady and to a life of union with love divine. So when they coded all these uh, narratives, what they found was that those who had higher proportion of positive emotion sentences lived longer. So for every 1% increase in the number of of positive emotion sentences, there was a 1.4% decrease in the likelihood of dying over the course of the study. Um, This is controlling for age and education, two factors that are often related to mortality. Um, Negative emotion did not have an effect, and no emotion was not related. So it wasn't just that they were um, lacking in negative emotion. So um, that's one of my favorites. So uh, today I'm talking about positive emotion during stress, which might seem particularly counterintuitive because stress is associated with negative emotion, and that's adaptive in many ways. Those negative emotions focus our attention. They help us know what we need to pay attention to and that something bad is going on. Um, But what we found is that positive emotions occur in the context of serious stress and also have adaptive functions, and I'm going to walk you through this literature a little bit. my first introduction to this idea that positive emotion occurred in the context of stress was par- as part of the UCSF coping project. So this was a study of uh, men who were caring for their partners with AIDS, um, collected here at UCSF. Susan Folkman was the PI of this study, and the study was ongoing when I came here in 1993 as a postdoc. Um, and what this was was a longitudinal study really focused on stress and coping. And this is one of the most stressful life experiences you can imagine. Having a partner at this point um, who's dying from a very, basically, AIDS was terminal at this point. The more effective therapies weren't out yet. Um, so having AIDS and being at the point where you needed caregiving practically guaranteed that you would die. And so it ended up being a caregiving and bereavement study. We were studying the caregivers. We were asking about their caregiving stress and about their stress of, of losing a partner as well. Um, this is the slide that shows you that having a partner die is stressful. Um, over on this side, this, that's the CESD. That's a depressive mood scale. And this line across the bottom at 9, that's where the general population norm is on the CESD. Um, at 16, you're at a level of 16, that's considered at risk for clinical depression. The caregivers are up top here. So there's uh, three months and one month prior to the death of the partner. You see, see the depressive mood is quite elevated. There's a big spike right after the death of the partner. We brought them back in within about a month, two weeks to a month of the partner dying. So they were interviewed right in the, in the thick of it. Um, and their depressive mood stays elevated. Um, this, one, this slide only goes out to seven months. I have data out to three years on these men. They continue to have elevated depressive mood. The surprising thing here is that they also had positive emotions. So the bluish line is negative affect. It's a different scale, but it's a negative emotion scale. How much of this negative emotion did you feel in the past week? And you see that it does track along with what's going on in the participant's life. So as their partner's getting sicker and dying, their their negative emotion spikes up. You see the death of the partner right there in the middle. The yellow line is positive emotion. And uh, the investigators who designed the study had the foresight to actually measure positive emotion separately. And this is not always done by any means. And you see that positive emotion also, or positive affect, also tracks along with what's going on with the participant. So it sort of bounces along at about the levels of negative emotion. This is frequency of this emotion in the past week. There's a big dip around the time of the death of the partner, as you would expect. But also, then it, it bounces back fairly quickly within a few months to the extent that in the past week, positive emotion is actually more frequent than negative emotion for these participants, which really surprised us. Um, 
So we looked at it in some other data sets. We've since replicated this um, in maternal caregivers ca caring for a child with um, HIV or other serious chronic illness. We've replicated it in people newly diagnosed with HIV, bereaved spouses, students experiencing college stress, you name it. If the investigator measures positive emotion as well as negative emotion, you will see this co-occurrence. So this led us to think that there's something adaptive about positive emotion in this context. And um, others who are working on this have really shown, and I've shown this in some of my data sets as well, there are adaptive functions of positive emotion during stress. So it can do things like, um, it tends to build your coping resources. So people who have more positive emotion, for example, tend to elicit more social support, which then helps you cope more with the stress. And again, this is independent of the negative emotion that you're experiencing. Uh, positive emotion is associated with better health behaviors. So people, even under stress, if they have more positive emotion, they will take better care of themselves. It's associated with better sleep, higher likelihood of exercising. There's some evidence that it might be related to better adherence to uh, prescribed medications. A positive emotion may actually boost the immune system directly, and it may actually decrease or shorten the cardiovascular stress response. Um, some work done by Barbara Fredrickson and Bob Levinson um, they actually brought people into a laboratory and showed them distressing films. So everyone was, was um, they triggered a stress response in these folks. And then, you know, half the group was shown a neutral film and half the, sh the group was shown sort of a fun, happy film. And those who were shown the fun, happy film recovered back to their baseline much more quickly than those who didn't experience those positive emotions based on the film. So, I mean, much of this seems sort of obvious at this point, but... I think in terms of research and intervention, we're really just coming to realize how important positive emotions in the context of stress are. So, you know, based on this literature and some other studies that I had been doing, it became really clear to me that the next step for me was to design an intervention for people experiencing serious stress and to teach them how to have more positive emotion in the midst of, of distress. We had... Um, you know, a number of studies at that point showing that um, people who n had naturally occurring positive emotion in the context of stress did better in the long run. But what I felt I needed to do was really then sort of get in there and mess with people. Um, and I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm a social psychologist. So this made me quite uncomfortable. But it was clear that this was the next thing to do. So then the question was, well, what do you do to make people feel happier? So you know, maybe show them pictures of puppies, or maybe you're more of a cat person, and this works better for you. This one always works for me. Babies make me happy. Or, you know, baby seals or beaches, or maybe you like unicorns and rainbows and birds. You know, it's hard to know what works for different people. So I did what any good scientist does, and I went to the literature. And I looked for skills, behaviors, and practices that have data suggesting that they increase positive emotion. And since this is a fairly new area of research, there's not always data showing that this works in the context of stress. But I, I went back to the literature to pull out anything that was sort of suggestive, and I'm um, testing this now. So let me tell you what these are. I came up with this set of eight skills. Um, I'm going to go through these one by one, so don't worry about sort of taking care of them now. Um, but let me walk you through it. So the first one is noticing positive events. Um, there's a whole history of literature going back to the 80s showing that positive life events are associated with more positive emotion. That's not surprising. But 
what is surprising that even seemingly minor events, little things, can have an impact, and the key is to note when they happen. So when you're under stress, you're less likely, often less likely to notice these good things that are going on. So the trick is to really be able to sort of open your eyes and see these things, little things. I was, the example I always use is a good cup of coffee. Um, we heard from our participants this um, this publication is from the men's caregiving study where they first sort of told us we had to ask them about positive events as well, so we did. And they would report things like, uh, you know, it was a beautiful day today, or even though my partner is dying, you know, I really felt like I took good care of him today. So it's this noticing the good things that are going on instead of focusing exclusively on the bad things. Um, here's a quote from my study of uh, people newly diagnosed with HIV. I think before I was HIV positive, I wasn't very aware of how much small things make people happy. So sometimes it's that the stress actually sh um, throws the positive events into uh, relief, and you see them more than you would sort of in your normal everyday life. So related to noticing positive events is something we call capitalizing or savoring. Um, this is an expressive response to positive events. So it's telling someone about it, it's writing about it in your diary, it's thinking about it later. And the idea is that by re-experiencing it, by thinking it again, you're re-experiencing the positive emotions and you're re-experiencing both the physiological and psychological benefits of positive emotions. So. Um, you may have friends who, you know, you've gone to a movie, it was okay, you know, and the next day your friend will call you and say, wasn't that a great movie? I loved that movie. It was great. And that, you know, that kind of thing always kind of makes me roll my eyes. But really what the friend is doing is re-experiencing that positive emotion. It's actually a really good thing, as long as she doesn't drive all her friends crazy with it. Um, so what capitalizing does is make the effect of positive events even stronger. The third skill we teach our participants uh, is gratitude. And again, this is one of the ones that I sort of thought, well, I'm actually kind of a cynic despite uh, appearances and the research that I do. And I thought, oh, gratitude, it's kind of religious. I don't know that that's going to work. But there's actually a lot of data showing that this does work. So gratitude is defined here as a feeling of thankfulness and appreciation expressed toward others. You know, it can be other people, nature, God. It's being grateful or thankful for basically anything. Um, and there's quite a bit of data showing that keeping a gratitude journal is associated with increased positive emotion, but also fewer symptoms, better sleep quality, and greater satisfaction with life. And it's not just in students. Um, this work has actually been done in people with serious illnesses and Vietnam War vets with PTSD. So this gratitude journaling intervention is actually quite powerful, it seems, um, and the folks who've done that. The next skill that we teach our participants is mindfulness, which is the ability to intentionally pay attention to and maintain non-judgmental awareness of one's experience in the present moment. Um, there are entire courses taught at the Osher Center, eight-week MBSR courses, you two can sign up, um, to teach you mindfulness. Um, and that course goes into more detail in mindfulness-based stress reduction. We do something a little bit heretical to the mindfulness folks, and we teach this to our participants in one session. And we talk about mindful breathing and then t some um, some practice on just paying attention to what you're doing in the moment. So, you know, when you're brushing your teeth, just brush your teeth. Don't brush your teeth and get dressed and do your hair and think about your kids. And I mean, so it's paying attention to what you're doing when you're doing it and not judging yourself for whatever you're feeling or whatever you're thinking at that moment. And that non-judgment piece turns out to be quite important as well. Um, when you're practicing sort of the mindful breathing and you're trying to just concentrate on your breath and a million thoughts are going through your mind, that's normal for the more million thoughts to be going through your mind. The trick there is not to get down on yourself for having this mind, this monkey mind as they call it. So we teach our participants this sort of brief mindfulness intervention 
Um, there's, again, a growing literature showing that mindfulness interventions are associated with increased positive emotion, decreased depression, and better physical health across a range of type of stressors or stressful events that people might be experiencing. The next skill is positive reappraisal, and this comes out of the coping literature. Um, this is what I was talking about in the beginning, um, that appraisal is your interpretation of the significance of a given event for your well-being. So you and I might both be, both be waiting for the same bus that's late. And if I am, and I'm on my way to work, and if I'm late for work, I'm going to get fired. So that late bus is actually incredibly stressful for me because it has huge significance, huge negative significance for my well-being. Um, for you, you might be headed to the beach for the day, and you know if you're 15, 20 minutes late, it's not going to matter. So the late bus is not going to be as stressful for you as it is for me. So it's your appraisal of an event that determines your emotional response to an event. So. When you have a positive reappraisal, that's a reinterpretation of the event in a more positive way. So it's um, how maybe the event is not as bad as you thought it was initially. It's the idea that maybe something good can kind of come out of this event. You know, maybe I hate my job, and it's actually better for me to get fired because then I can go on and get a new job. That's a positive reappraisal of a potentially stressful event. Um, so, yeah, again, seeing the silver lining, seeing how things could have been worse. Um, this is actually a skill that needs to be developed. Um, I'm going to talk a, in a little bit about our pilot work uh, on this intervention. And we try to teach our participants to start really small. At this point, I've been studying coping and positive reappraisal for almost 20 years, and I can reappraise anything, which is usually a good thing, but I think I annoy the people around me. I know I annoy my children. I'm like, Mom, just let me feel bad about it for a minute. So I try to, you know, it's okay, it's a bad thing, you can feel bad, and then we sort of work up to the positive reappraisal. Um, but it is a skill, and, you know, in, in our pilot work, the, initially the participants were trying to reappraise huge life events, like their horrible childhood. And then when they couldn't reappraise that as anything good, they felt like a failure, and then they, you know, weren't doing the intervention right and it was a, a disaster. So we really focus on little things, you know, reappraise losing your keys or reappraise a negative interaction that you had with someone on the bus. I mean, it's just start small and then you can build your way up to reappraising things like, you know, death and chaos and destruction, which I can actually do. Um, the next skill that we teach our participants is focusing on personal strengths. So this is a form of self-affirmation, sort of reminding oneself of, of your worth. Um, Stuart Smalley was right. Um, actually, if this is genuine, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Those are strengths. And if it's genuine and you really believe that, then that's actually going to increase your positive emotion. Um, so this, these kinds of self-affirmation are associated with more positive emotion after a failure and better psychological adjustment to illness. Um, Shelley Taylor has shown some of this, in, again, 20 years ago um, in women with breast cancer. Um, uh, our pilot data indicate that this is particularly powerful in the intervention. So our pilot data is actually in people newly diagnosed with HIV. So they're coming in, they're doing this intervention within about 8 to 12 weeks of testing positive. So many, for many of them, they're experiencing the most serious stressful event of their lives. And they're coming from chaotic life circumstances often. And um, when our facilitator says, okay, let's talk about your personal strengths, oftentimes they can't come up with anything, or they can come up with maybe one thing. So at this point, then the facilitator steps in and says, well, you know what I see? And with this is about four weeks into the intervention. So now the facilitator has had some experience with the participant, and he says, well, you know what I see is that you're really dependable because you've come to every session. Or I see, you know, from what you're telling me, I think you're a really good friend. And um, this 
again, since we're early in the data collection, I'm still listening to every session. And every time I hear this, it gives me chills because the participant hears it and believes it. And it's something so simple like this, like having someone that they respect and, and you know, have a rapport with at this point saying, well, I do see some good things about you that it's, it's this huge change comes over the participant at that point. We also teach them attainable goals. This is number seven, if you're keeping track. Um, and this is something that I think most of us, certainly in this setting, have experienced. When you make yourself a list of things to do and you cross something off that list, that feels good. Um, so what we do is we help our participants make a list of things they're going to do in the next week. And we try to make sure that they're just at the right level of challenge. So it's not something like... Um, I'm going to breathe this week. Because you don't get positive emotion from doing something that's so easy or so intuitive that um, it's, there's no effort involved. But we also don't say, you know, I'm going to find a cure for cancer this week. I mean, we sort of bring it down to this week I'm going to um, get the application for graduate school or, you know, just small steps. And the, with the facilitator, the participant works on this list of, of goals for the week. Um, there's quite a bit of research showing that pursuit of attainable goals versus these more global, I'm going to be a good person um, type of goals, uh, these attainable goals are associated with higher subjective well-being, so higher positive emotion. The final session we talk about is acts of kindness. Um, this is the pay it forward kind of thing. Um, uh, but again, you know, I pulled these from, from empirical studies, and it sh those studies show that people who volunteer or engage in other altruistic behaviors um, have a lower risk of mortality and a lower risk of serious illness. Uh, there was actually a really great study done. Um, it was published in 2008 by Dunn, and what they did was they took a sample of, of participants, um, just n not with any particular chronic condition. It may have even been students, but they brought them into the lab, and they gave them $20. Everybody got $20. And half of them were told, go out today and spend that $20 on yourself. Buy yourself something nice, put it toward a bill, pay your rent with it, you know, whatever, something with the $20. And then the other group was told to go out and spend this $20 on somebody else, somebody, you know, a stranger, spend it on somebody else. And then at the end of the day, they had measured their happiness at the beginning of the day, and then they measured their happiness at the end of the day. And you can see where I'm going with this. The people who spent their $20 on someone else were happier than the people who spent their $20 on themselves. And they also had another condition where they only gave people $5, and it was the same effect. So it wasn't the level, of, the amount of money that it was. So um, there's actually something to this, acts of kindness, paying the bridge toll for the person behind you. Um, so spending money on others is associated with greater happiness than spending it on oneself. So, I, you know, I went to the literature, I pulled together these eight skills, and then the trick was to then test them and put them together into some sort of in, intervention that would um, have an impact. So um, this was called the IRIS study, which stands for Intervention for Those Recently Informed of Their Seropositive Status. I think it's always important, just as a side note, get an acronym first and then write the grant. It makes things much easier. Um, our pilot work was funded by the Mount Zion Health Fund, and then the R01 is funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Um, when we were doing our pilot work, we were calling it Puppies in Sunshine. This is pre-acronym, so um, that's what that is. So, but that, we didn't think that would fly well with the feds, so we came up with a more official-sounding acronym for the study. So the philosophy here um, that I haven't made really explicit in talking about these skills is that testing positive for HIV is stressful. And you know, broadening it to any kind of stress that you're experiencing, life is stressful. Having a chronic illness is stressful. <laughs> 
living is stressful, being a parent is stressful, being a professional is stressful, working at UC is stressful. Um, this intervention is not to minimize that. Um, life is stressful and there are very natural negative emotions that go along with that. And as I said earlier, that's adaptive. That, you know, those negative emotions tell you something's wrong and something needs to be addressed. This is not Pollyanna. I'm not saying just, well, you know, whatever your stress is, who cares? Just be happy. Just buck up and stop doing that. That's not it. We really make this very skills-based, and we talk about this to our participants as these are skills that you can learn. These are tools that you can have in your toolbox so that when you're experiencing stress, you can go there and find something to increase your positive emotion, and that will help you cope better with whatever stress you're experiencing. Um, so again, we explained to the participants, the response to stress is complex and includes positive as well as negative emotions. So just letting people know that positive emotions are possible and can have a beneficial effect actually goes a long way. So this is a skills building intervention where we, we really, um, oftentimes our participants, particularly if they've been in therapy, want to come in and talk about their problems. And we, we listen to that, but then we also make it clear we're just trying to make more space in your life for the positive emotions as well. So the negative stuff that's going on, that's important. If you need to talk, you know, you need to get a therapist, that's great. You, you should do that. There's benefit to that. But what we're doing here is just making space for the positive. So we really try to refocus them on the possibility that they can have positive emotions as well. Um, this is how we group the sessions. So it's actually five weekly sessions. There's nothing magical about that. That's just what we're testing. Um, they are 60 minutes, six, 45 to 60 minutes, uh, individual one-on-one -on -one facilitator guided um, interventions. And I did it one-on-one -on -one for the HIV um, population for a couple of reasons. One, people who are newly diagnosed with HIV, there's a lot of stigma. There's sometimes they haven't disclosed their status to anyone, only to the study. We're the only people who know that, then they're healthcare providers who know that they're positive. So for them to come out in a group, even if everyone else has HIV as well, is asking a lot and would put an, another layer on their stress that we don't want to do. Um, the other thing we can do one-on-one -on -one is we can sort of tailor it to cognitive level and allow people an educational level. So to help people understand the skills, the, the facilitator really works with them one-on-one -on -one and sort of modifies it to make sure that they're getting it, whereas in a group that wouldn't be as possible. It's also easier to get people in one-on-one. -on -one. You know, if, I don't know if any of you have done a randomized trial where you're trying to do a group intervention. You've got to fill that group up before you can go, and that really slows the study down. So we do one-on-one we do -on -one so we can get them in as soon as they're recruited. So they do the session with the facilitator, and then they're given, um, they're, they're taught the skill for the week, the skill or skills, sometimes we do more than one. And then they're given daily home practice. Um, we don't call it homework, because that's not a nice word. It's home practice, and you go home and you practice this just like you would practice any skill. It's like exercise, you have to do it. And it's going to work if you do it, but once you stop doing it, it's going to stop working. So we really um, grind in that message. Um, so we ran a pilot study with 11 people who were newly diagnosed with HIV. And just let me tell you a little bit about um, what they said about it. Uh, this is a great study to be involved in. Help me see my life in the larger sense. I'm really doing well. It's like collecting pennies under your sofa, but then the whole jar fills up and you realize you have a lot more than you thought. This is the same thing. There are many more positive things in my life than I realized. Um, so I'm Testing this, the R01 is in people newly diagnosed with HIV. I'm trying to expand it to other illnesses, not because I think this, there's anything specific to having a chronic or serious illness that makes these positive emotion 
skills work. Um, that's just sort of an NIH funding. You sort of have to have a disease to study. Um, but I'm also expanding it into uh, middle school kids. So we're, we're, I'm talking with some schools about how to modify this so we can teach the parents and the kids these skills and help them cope better with their stresses of, of parenting and being an adolescent. So you may all wonder, so what does this have to do with me? Um, since this is a women's health talk, I wanted to say just a little something about gender differences. Um, there are gender differences in emotional experience. Um, women tend, when you, if you just take a big sample of, of people and look at women's emotion reporting versus men's, women report more intense emotions, both positive and negative. Um, women also tend to be more depressed than men. Women are more likely to become depressed than men. They also report comparable levels of happiness. So it's hard to know exactly what's going on. Maybe it's just a reporting thing that women are more like, they're freer with their emotions and more likely to talk about them. Um, again, this is on a global basis. Um, I think for individuals, it can vary wildly. Um, in terms of the positive emotion skills I've just talked about, um, there isn't really a lot of evidence for gender differences in how much these are likely to generate positive emotion or how much these are likely to uh, help you cope with stress. Um, there was one study that I found that asked men and women what made them happy and had them you know, rank a list of 32 things and add things if they wanted to. And there were a few gender differences that came out. Women were more likely to rank helping others, um, having a close family, and being loved by loved ones as things that make them happy. Men were more likely to rank sports, being liked, having a good social life, and sexual activity. Um, again, you know, these are global gender differences. For any given individual, there's going to be a huge variability in what works. And I think that's one of the keys to this intervention is that you find what works for you. So I'm not saying, I'm not telling you what your positive events should be. I'm saying, you know, pay attention and note what your positive events are. So maybe for men it is more likely to be sex, and for women it is more likely to be helping others. But that's not actually part of the intervention. So it's, it's able to sort of be customized based on the individual. Um, so, you know, and I, I said this, that the skills and the basic idea of the benefits of positive emotion apply across type and severity of stress, and I'm convinced of this, and um, again, I'm trying this to, to get the empirical data in lots of different samples so that I can really say, yes, this works for anyone under any kind of stress. It's not Pollyanna. Um, and the other piece of this is these are not the magic eight skills packaged into the magic five-week intervention. These are all individual skills, and the idea is that there should be something in here for everyone. So of these eight skills, maybe there's just one or two that kind of appeal to you and work for you, so do those. Um, there's some evidence, there's something called the hedonic treadmill that um, you know lottery winners are happier for a short period of time, and then they go back to their baseline. So it's possible, and we don't know, we'll test this, that um, a skill that works in the beginning will then stop working for an individual. Then the idea is then you've got you know, seven more skills you can go back to and try, um, or another combination of skills, or try one that you tried before and didn't work, and you can go back to that one. So they don't have to be taken as a package. Um, I just walked you through how I found them. They were all individual studies that I pulled out of mostly the psychological literature. Um, but the idea is there should be something in here for everyone. Okay, and fit is important, so find what works for you. Thank you. I have some, lots of time for questions, actually. There are the skills again, in case you're wondering. Any questions at this point? Yeah. Um, I'm wondering about the people that um, declined to participate in the study, and if you ask them why, 
Right. So the, peop- the question is, um, she's wondering about the people who declined to be in the study and if we ask them why. Um, for the HIV study, which is the one that I actually have the data on, we're recruiting through HIV clinics. And our recruiters you know, identify people who are in the eligibility window and say, are you interested in being in a study? And um, you know, if they say yes, they'll pass their information on to us. And then there's another screening at that point. And we lose a few more people at that point. So our... So at the first step, we don't we don't know who actually never comes to see us from the you know the recruiter tells them in the clinic we we don't know about those folks except generally from the recruiters the the main reason is that people are completely overwhelmed and freaked out <laughs> and they can't come into a study at this point. Um, we do when someone drops out of the study we ask them you know what is it it's usually you know I can't come in to these sessions. Um, We had one participant who actually stayed in the study, but he was struggling, and he said, this just makes me think about my HIV more. So, you know, it wasn't a good match for his sort of coping with this. I think um, the intervention is going to work better for people who tend to enroll in studies and sort of have a, I'm not sure I like the word proactive, but who who are are more sort of problem-focused in their um, type of coping. So people who sort of realize that they've got HIV, they need to do something, so they enroll in studies as part of the something that they're doing. So yeah, it's definitely biased in that sense. Yeah. yeah. Other questions? Yeah. Yeah, so what's the control intervention? This is always a really tricky um, when you're doing psychological intervention. So our control intervention may be too good. We have uh, one-on-one with the same facilitators, actually, personal interviews. So they come in for the same number of sessions um, with the same facilitators, and they um, do uh, face-to-face questionnaires. So they do, like, personality questionnaires. We ask them a health history. uh, Up to testing positive for HIV, we ask them life history. Um, We have a diet and a nutrition section that's sort of agonizing. (laughs) You know, do you eat meat? What kind of meat do you eat? How often do you eat? I mean, so, like, this sort of detailed. But it's um, I, what I often get when I talk about my research, the observational research that I do, is that, well, people really like talking about themselves. So just by interviewing them, you're increasing their positive emotion. Um, we'll actually be able to see that. Um, if just Maybe just spending an hour with a facilitator for five weeks will increase people's positive emotion. And you know, I'll be a little disappointed that my hypothesis wasn't upheld. But man, have I discovered a great new intervention. You know, so we'll see. Yes? Right, so the question was, how do we control for antidepressants and anti-anxiety medication? We measure it, so we ask them what they're on. Um, Generally, in previous studies, we found that people on antidepressants tend to be more depressed, (laughs) actually, um, than the the rest of the the sample. So, you know, know, we'll know if they're on those medications and be able to look at it as part of the analysis, but we don't necessarily um, expect things to look that different for them. Yeah. Yes? Yeah, so the question was, what happens to negative emotion in the time that we're intervening with positive emotion? It decreases um, quite a bit, dramatically. Um, so I didn't, I didn't give you the data slide where I showed what our pilot data, um, what we found in our pilot data, but 
we increased positive emotion over what you would expect. Um, our comparison group for the pilot data was uh, just an observational study of people newly diagnosed with HIV. So we had repeated assessments of their positive emotion. So we were thinking of that as sort of the normative level and their negative emotion and their depression. So we compared our pilot subjects to that. So compared to that observational study, the pilot subjects had significant increases in positive emotion, significant decreases in negative emotion, significant decreases in depressive mood. Um, we also measured mindfulness and over the five weeks of the study, there weren't significant increases in mindfulness, but we did a 30-day follow-up, and then we saw the bounce in mindfulness, So, which is actually really exciting for mindfulness researchers to see that the people who then sort of took up mindfulness, and it wasn't just one or two people, our participants actually really uh, got into it, um, that the mindfulness change took a little bit longer, but it actually did happen, just based on that one little session. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Other questions? Yeah. I noticed that one of the practices is not by getting support from others. What role do you see in that? All right, so the question is um, getting support from others, and, and what role do I see that playing in, in generating positive emotion? Um, I actually think social support is a two edged sword. So it can be really good, and it can, having loved ones. Uh, sort of interfere with you can actually be a negative thing. So we actually, when we measure social support, we also measure negative social support. I, I see social support as something sort of farther downstream, that if we're able to help people who are experiencing the significant stress or have more positive emotion, they'll be able to elicit more social support. And there's actually data to support that um, in other studies. So people... Um, just as an example, a study that was done of people whose spouses had died within the past six months. It was bereaved participants, and they were actually uh, videotaped talking about their spouse, their deceased spouse. And um, they had sort of naive observers view the videotapes, and they found that for the people who showed more smiles talking about their deceased spouse, the naive observers reported being more likely to want to help that person. So again, you know, they were bereaved, they were distressed, but they were able to show positive emotion in talking about their deceased spouse, and that led the observers to say, um, I'd be more likely to help them. So I actually think that increasing positive emotion will help people elicit more social support from those around them. We'll see. To be, to be determined. Yeah. Anything else? Great. Well, thank you so much for your attention. I'm happy to answer any questions if anyone has any others that they want to do individually. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.